0: So I have the lovely Vaseem Khan with me. Hiya, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi Donna and hi to everybody else watching. Uh, so my name is Vaseem and I write uh, two sets of novels. One series set in modern Mumbai in India uh, and one series set in 1950 in Bombay in India. Uh, and I guess we'll get into a bit more detail about those, those books soon. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yep. <laughs> uh, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer?
1: Well, I wrote my first book when I was age 17. I was reading Terry Pratchett and I uh, decided that this looked really, really easy. And so I wrote my uh, uh, my first novel, A Comic Fantasy. Uh, and then I sent it in to, to several agents. And then I had the talk with my parents, and I basically said to them that I'm not going to university, I'm going to be a rich and famous writer. And you can imagine what my parents, uh, Asian parents uh, to boot, thought of that, uh, that cunning plan. Uh, and of course, uh, everything went pear-shaped. Uh, I got a bunch of rejection letters back. And because there was, a, there, was, there was a flaw in this amazing plan of mine, and that was that the book was absolutely rubbish. Uh, which you can imagine at the age of 17, not not a lot of people can write very well. And so I did end up going to university. Uh, I became a management consultant and then I went abroad and I lived in India for 10 years. And then when I came back, I decided that I was going to write uh, books, Uh, a book that uh, showcased some of those amazing memories of of India that I that I'd had over those over that decade. And that book became the unexpected inheritance of Inspector Inspector Chopra. And uh, that basically um, set the the foundation for my my career as a writer.
0: And was there a catalyst for you just to sit down one day and say, okay, now this is the time, now I'm going to start writing?
1: Well... (laughs) While I was abroad, uh, Donna, I, I wrote six more novels over over two decades, actually. Literary novels, uh, historical, uh, thrillers, romance, erotica. Um, and I just kept sending them in to, to agents all around the UK and uh, getting another batch of rejection letters. I've got so many rejection letters I could possibly wallpaper my, my bedroom wall with it. Um, but, you know... By the time that I got around to writing The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra, um, it was, I didn't expect to be published. Uh, and, I, I, and so what I did with that book was I wrote about the things that I cared about. I wrote about the India that I'd experienced. It was a crime novel, because I love crime fiction. And then into the mix, I threw in a baby elephant. And that seemed to have done the trick. I got a four book deal with by, uh, from Hodder, uh, one of the world's largest publishers and we haven't looked back since. So you never know when when your luck can change, I
0: guess. (laughs) (laughs) Baby elephant, no ears, right, okay. (laughs) That's all it takes, that's good. Um, What made you do the two different series with the two different times? Well, I think I
1: got to a point having written five books in that first first series. I should probably show, show you. You'll read the cover. So this was this was the unexpected inher- inheritance of Inspector Chopra. And um, so it's about a, a policeman who retires in his mid 40s from the Bombay police force. And then a, a dead body, uh, the body of a poor boy, a local boy arrives in the station and he quickly realizes that his seniors in the service don't want him to investigate this boy's death. And so like any self-respecting crime fighter, he decides to go off and solve the murder on his own. But on that last day, he also... Um, as, I, as I've mentioned, he inherits a one-year-old baby elephant. And so, so we have this this, this this very serious, straight-laced, honest man who's operating in a sea of corruption because uh, the Indian Police Service, unfortunately, has a reputation for being very inept and, and, and quite corrupt. And, and Chopra's not like that. And he also cares deeply about the social problems in his country uh, because modern India is a function of, of all of the things that we've heard about. You know, lots of money flowing into the country through outsourcing and shopping centers and, and call centers and all the rest of it. Uh, but there's also these amazing, these incredible legacy issues from the Raj era and, 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 and prior to that, where you've got poverty on a scale we can't imagine. You've got caste prejudice, you've got religious intolerance that keeps raising its head. And all of these things, they, they don't sit well with Chopra. And, and so in these books, what I've tried to do is to try and showcase some of that, some of that uh, dark and the light of, of India to give people an idea of what modern India is really like. And as we move through that series, each of those, the, the five books in that series, they try and explore a different dynamic of, of, that, uh, of, that, uh, of, of this modern era of India. But then I got to thinking, well, how did this modern, e- modern India take shape? And the answer to that is the roots of this modern India are really, uh, were really created when India became independent from the British Raj. And that was back in 19, 1947. And that's where my second series, the Malabar House series is set in 1950, just a couple of years after independence, after Gandhi has been assassinated and after the horrors of, of partition, which, um, you know, which I can talk a little bit more about in a bit, I guess.
0: Um, what's the most interesting thing you found while researching your books?
1: Well, there's so many different things. So, so take, uh, take the historical series. So that began with this book. So Midnight at Malabar House. And that's, um, that's about India's first female police inspector. And uh, her name is Persis and she qualifies for the police service at a time when there are no female police inspectors in India and so nobody wants to work with her right and so they shove her into Bombay's smallest police station Malabar house where all the rejects and the misfits are sent uh, and then the uh, then a murder happens a murder of a, a senior English diplomat living in Bombay and it falls into her lap and and so we follow her as she tries to 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 solve the murder and one of the things that I discovered was that Tens of thousands of foreigners were still in India after Indian independence. Now, I I didn't know that. You know, I had never been to India until the age of 23 when I got the chance to go there to work. But my parents were from the subcontinent. And I had just thought, like many people, that in 1947, all the Brits and all the other foreigners left. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And that's because thousands and tens of thousands of them stayed in the country either because they'd been born there and raised there and they didn't want to go back to cold, wet, miserable England. Um, they were used to a standard of life with servants and the rest of it that they didn't want to give up. Or many of them were asked to stay on because after 300 years of the East India Company and the Raj, the Indians had finally been able to take over the, the administrative reins of their own country. But they had no experience because the, Brit, Brit, uh, the Brits had kept them out of running the country and so they needed the expertise of some of these Brits to, 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 to stay around and to help them to take over and to and to, to run the country and to decide what kind of democracy India was going to be. Because in 1947, India became the world's largest democracy with 300 million, million Indians. So that was an intriguing fact, the fact that there were still so many foreigners. And that's why in that series, you see so many, um, so many white people getting murdered. <laughs>
0: Um, if you were to be picked up and transported as a character into any of your books, which would you choose?
1: Well, you know what? I get a lot of questions about my first series, and and, and a lot of those questions are focused on the baby elephant that uh, that ends up in that in that series. Uh, so that series did incredibly well. The, the Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra was a Times bestseller. It's been translated into 16 countries and therefore i get mail from all those countries because after five books we had an established base of fans around the world and so a lot of them were a bit miffed that i decided that i wanted to write historical historical fiction and i keep getting lots and lots of emails about you know when's the when's the next episode coming Uh, but also i get very threatening threatening messages about that baby elephant because people want to make sure that nothing bad is ever going to happen to it they don't care if the lead character chopra Chopra gets hurt. (laughs) Nobody wants anything. So I should be clear. You know, the elephant doesn't talk. It doesn't fly. It doesn't sing. Um, It doesn't solve the mysteries. It's it's a metaphor. It's a symbol for India. And what it does is it allows me to do two things. Um, The elephant, whose name is Ganesha, it allows me to humanize Chopra because he's a very serious and rigid man. And he doesn't really want to look after this baby elephant to begin with. But then as time goes by, we see that we see a different side to him. We see him open up to the fact that this this orphan elephant is in his care, and he has to do something about it. And he lives on the fifteenth floor of a tower block with his wife, and they've never had kids. Um, and so the the elephant becomes a kind of surrogate. But what do you do when you live on the fifteenth floor of a tower block and someone gives you a baby elephant? Well, you know, you'll all have to, to read the book to, to find out. Uh, but it also allows me to add a gentle note of humor throughout the series, uh, because when we're, we're exploring dark topics, there's murders and there's the dark, the darkness of certain parts of India, such as the slums, for instance, which I, which I explore in that, in that first book. Um, and, and, you know, unless you've been to India, you can't imagine what it's like to go into one of these slums where families are living six or seven to a single room dwelling. There's almost no um, sanitation. There's very little transport infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But people are getting on with life, you know, they, they, they're, they're doing the things that other people do. They're, they're trying to eke out a living. They love Bollywood films. They love uh, the only difference is that they don't pay for them. They just steal the cable line off, their, off the off the of the neighbors. So, um, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, I think I, I, at least readers have, have written to me about that particular character. So if I had to be any of my characters, it would probably be that baby. elephant. <laughs>
0: and if you were able to take out one of your characters for a meal who would you choose and what would you ask them
1: well it would definitely be persis uh, so persis is the is the india's first female police inspector who's in my malabar house series um and i'd ask her why are you so bloody ruthless uh, because <laughs> one of the things that i've written her as in that series is someone who is quite blind to her own ambition she's so determined to succeed and and to prove everyone wrong uh, in this environment which is very paternalistic sometimes misogynistic environment uh, the police service in india in 1950 that sometimes she just runs over people in her desire to to get to to resolve the, the the various murders and things that come her way and know i did that deliberately because what i didn't want was to create a female character who panders to the norm in india where you know women are supposed to be somewhat demure somewhat um uh, you know unwilling to get in the face of of men who antagonize them for fear of the you know the fact that it's a very patriarchal country Uh, whereas persis is the exact opposite and she doesn't even realize she's doing it at times um, now, she works very closely with an Englishman named Archie Blackfinch. So he's a, a, a metropolitan police forensic scientist who's been invited to Bombay to help set up a forensic science lab. And so he is he's taken aback a little bit by the way that she she is. But over time, we, we see them working together and gradually we get this kind of will they or won't won't they vibe um, coming to us. Uh, so, you know, we were talking earlier about, about romance and, and all the rest of it. Um, although this isn't a traditional romance, I always feel that relationships are incredibly important to, to crime novels uh, because part of the fascination of, of reading a crime novel is to see how characters develop. And Persis starts off as this single woman who's, who's just so determined in her career and then working with Archie, who is the enemy. He's, the, he's an Englishman. Right. And India have just come out from the Raj. Um, How can she possibly be attracted to him Uh, and vice versa? Uh, And then as time goes by, we well, I won't tell you exactly what happens because, you know, I'm hoping that that readers will go on the journey and and discover that as the various books in the series take place. But uh, it's an intriguing dynamic.
0: Which of your characters gives you most trouble?
1: Um, which of my characters gives me most trouble you know I love writing these characters and and the reason I love writing them is not just because you know I lived in India and I have a, an affinity for this material uh, and the people but but because so many readers uh, write to me and say that the warmth of these characters even persists even a cold fish like Persis, the warmth of her, because she she, uh, she lives above a bookshop, her father's bookshop. Now he's in a wheelchair and he's the most uh, antagonizing human being you can imagine. Uh, you know, he she lost her mother early, he's raised her and the pair of them are always going at it. But we sense the love that they share and that warmth that helps to take off some of the hard edges of, of someone like a Persis. So I guess... It would be that character and his name is Sam, Sam Wadia. Uh, he's, he's irascible, um, he gives short shrift to his customers, he couldn't care less if they bought a book in his bookshop uh, as long as they behave themselves and don't bother him. Um, you know anyone who comes, comes across him um, you know if, if, they, if they antagonize him he, he lets them have it with both barrels uh, and so I suppose I love writing him but it's, always, it's also a challenge to, to, to make sure that he, um, he doesn't come across as so over, overbearing that we dislike him. So far, that hasn't happened. Most people, he's one of the favourite characters in, in the Malabar House series for people, so.
0: Um, that was a bit like me at work, actually. <laughs> it was like, just go away and leave me alone. <laughs> Not ideal. <laughs> um, do you hide any secret jokes, messages, or Easter eggs in your books?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm always doing that. Um, Well, the first series, the Chopra series, um, so people don't, a lot of people know by now, I guess, because I've been around the industry for so long, uh, that I'm a huge fan of cricket. And I play it all summer long, very badly. I usually injure myself quite early. I mean, I've attended book festivals. I went to the Newcastle Noir Book Fest, uh, Crime Book Fest, on crutches from London. Uh, I've been to Crime Fest on crutches. So... You know, once I make a commitment to do something, I I do do it. Uh, But, you know, if you're asking me in the summer, the chances are I I might also have to turn up on crutches. So in that first series, the Baby Ganesh Agency series, as it's called with Inspector Chopra and and Ganesh the Elephant. um, In each one of those books, I have inserted the name of my favorite Indian cricketer. And his name is Sachin Tendulkar. He's retired now. Uh, and it was just a, a bit of an easter egg for, for, for other lovers of, of cricket I mean he, he's not in the books it's just a single sentence here and there just as an aside
0: awesome yeah I don't like cricket that much but um I do know who oh, he you're, is. A person,
1: you're a bad person you're a bad person
0: every pretty much every other sport except for football after yesterday but we'll brush over that <laughs> did you see what the final score was
1: uh, no, after you told me it was 6-0, I decided not to... Not yeah, to it anti- ended up as seven. <laughs> oh well, well, lucky number seven for some.
0: <laughs> yeah, not not for Luton Town. <laughs> it was pretty horrendous, actually, but never mind. <laughs> yeah. that's, um, I mean, we're just on the verge of playoffs, and after that, that's completely destroyed us, but we we'd be ruined in a Premier League. We've got no chance. So I'd rather we didn't, to be quite honest.
1: Well, as a lifelong sports fan, this is my, uh, you know, cricket, football, any, <laughs> any, anything where uh, grown men and women are, are wandering around doing things, uh, kicking balls and hitting balls and things. I mean, look, it's ridiculous. That's the way I look at it. It's <laughs> completely ridiculous. And when I go onto a cricket field and I take it seriously and I start arguing with the umpire when I'm given out, and then afterwards, my wife says to me, you know you're ridiculous, don't you? You're utterly ridiculous. You're a grown man uh, and you're, you're arguing about hitting a ball uh, with a piece of wood and you're taking it seriously. You're ridiculous. <laughs> so there you go. That's what my wife thinks of sport.
0: There is nothing quite like the brutal honesty of partners, is there? Especially non-time partners. Just <laughs> Not when they don't
1: share your passion. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, okay so you write crime novels you must have killed off your characters in lots of horrible ways but if you were to be a fictional killer how would you kill your victims
1: hmm. well there's two answers here so look if i want to commit the perfect murder and this is this is this is for all of you you lovely uh, viewers uh, if you're fed up with your spouses, and I can imagine that many of you are after after lockdown and the incredibly annoying habits that you discovered of your of your from your partners, um, this is how you go about doing it: you buy yourself an unregistered boat, you drive out into non-territorial waters, and then you murder your partner and you throw him overboard. Now, even if you're caught, you're going to get away with it because no one will be able to work out in which jurisdiction. They can actually try you for this murder. There you go. But in terms of a really intriguing murder uh, way of murder, so so this book, Bad Day at the Vulture Club. So this is the fourth book in that Chopra series. And in this book, what happens is a man from the Parsi community of India is murdered. Now the Parsi's are a very small but influential community in India. They're not Hindus, they're not Muslims, they're not Christians. They are Zoroastrians. And what they do is when you die, they leave your body out in stone towers, which are in a wooded uh, forest in the middle of Bombay. And they put your body on the stone tower for vultures to eat. And that's how they dispose of your, your body. And in that particular book, we see a Parsi, a very wealthy Parsi, he's murdered, and his body is dumped in one of these stone, stone towers. And then Chopra is called in and has to work out, you know, who, who, who committed this murder and, and whether the man was alive when the vultures began eating him or not, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this, is, this was amazing to me when I first discovered that these Parsis existed, because uh, I made a Parsi friend when I was living in, in Bombay. And the incredible thing is that when those towers of silence were first built a few hundred years ago, Bombay was very open. It wasn't congested, but since then it's become unbelievably congested. There are now 20 odd million people living in, 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 in Bombay. And that means that these these enormous high rise towers are built around Mm. the outside of the towers of silence. And the problem with that is that the vultures, like some of your, your customers, I guess they, they come in and they like a bit of a takeaway. Uh, so they'll chomp on the body for a bit and then they'll 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 pick up a bit and they'll start flight flying off and sometimes they'll drop those bits and pieces and you can imagine that these people who are having lunch or breakfast on their balconies on these high-rise towers and suddenly a a bit of desiccated finger lands in their cereal um, you can imagine what they think of it so there's a big fight going on in Bombay at the moment with with local residents trying to get these towers of silence, as they're called, uh, moved outside of Bombay. And the is rightfully saying, well, no, I'm sorry, this is sacred ground for us. It's been here for hundreds of years. We're not moving. So, you know, I thought it would make a wonderful backdrop for a crime for a crime novel.
0: <laughs> oh, <just> mental images. <laughs> uh, okay, so if you were fictionally murdered, who would you want to solve your case?
1: Who would I want? Oh gosh, I'd, I'd, want a com- I'd want a pairing. I'd want a combination of Poirot because he is my favorite uh, Agatha Christie uh, creation, my favorite golden age era um, uh, detective. And you know, my books are often, that the National Reviewers not compare them to, they, they, they either compare that first series to Alexander McCall Smith's uh, number one's ladies detective agency series uh, which I which I adore. So, but mine's up, my books, I guess, are a little bit darker. All my historical series is, is always compared to Agatha Christie's. Uh, and this year, in fact, I've been invited to speak at the International Agatha Christie Festival in, in Torquay later later this year as their as their keynote speaker. So that's really that's really <laughs> lovely, really lovely, for, just because of the fact that I adore Agatha Christie and I adore her the gold, that whole golden era sensibility. So I'd, I'd want uh, Poirot, and I'd want him partnered with uh, Precious Ramotswe, who is the, the protagonist from the number one ladies detective agency. She's a, a traditionally built, as, as I think she's described, um, lady from uh, Africa who has got a wonderful way about her in the way that she solves, solves mysteries with a lot of wisdom and uh, feel for human nature. And I think that's very important on uh, on any kind of crime, crime investigation.
0: Um, when you first started writing, what was the one thing that you most looked forward to happening and has it happened yet?
1: Well, Donna, I guess I've been incredibly lucky in the end. Um, it did take me two, two decades to get published and I did sort of mentally almost give up. Uh, but I didn't physically give up. I kept writing and then I would just send it out, but with no more hope of actually getting getting anywhere. So that was my first. That was the first and biggest hurdle of my life, you know, to fulfill my childhood dream of getting published, to then be published by a, a, you know, a massive publisher like like Hodder Hachette. And then my debut, they invited me onto the BBC Breakfast Sofa to to launch it. You know, and, and I'm not a nervous person, but, you know, six or seven million people who, who watched that show. And I was on with Charlie State and, and Sally Nugent uh, to launch that. I mean, it gave me the best, best launch possible for my career. And ever since then, it's been great. And I've won awards along the way. The Midnight at Malabar House won the CWA Historical Dagger, the Crime Writers Association Historical Dagger, which is the biggest award in the world for historical crime fiction. So and I've got national reviews and international translation. So all of those boxes have been ticked. But the truth, Donna, is this. I am, because I spent so long trying to get published, uh, it gives you a sense of humility. You know, you, 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 you realize that a lot of it is, is, is down to luck. Um, and a lot of it is something you can't plan for, no matter how much you want it to happen. And therefore the only thing that really, really matters out of all of these, Uh, so-called achievements is that readers uh enjoy your work or 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 some readers enjoy your work and so for me the the single biggest enjoyment that i take from from writing now is the ability to go out and do events uh, whether they're physical events or or or, or online events like this and to be able to communicate with with readers and, and 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 ask them you know what is it you like about the books what is it you hate about the books what is it you hate about me I, I don't I don't get offended. I've got thick skin. Um, and you know, reading is so subjective. I don't expect everyone to like every word that I've written. That would be ridiculous. Uh, I just appreciate the fact that there are readers out there who are allowing people like me to live out our dreams uh, mm-hmm. by writing these books and by buying enough of them so that my publisher will continue to publish me. <laughs> so please, if you like anything you've heard today, do buy one of my books.
0: So talking about readers, um, do you get a lot of feedback from your readers and what's the weirdest or funniest feedback you've ever had?
1: Well, you know what? I, I think that uh, readers are far more intelligent than the publishing industry sometimes uh, takes them for. And the reason I say this is, is because the, the publishing industry, um, I'm not having a go at it, but they they often put readers in a box and say, look, All of these readers, they love this kind of book and they'll never like anything else. And therefore, we will only market this kind of book to them. Whereas the truth is that I, for my whole life, have been a reader first and foremost before I was an author. And I know that I read lots of different kinds of books. I have my favorite genres, obviously. I love crime fiction. I love literary fiction. But I also love sci-fi. You know, and I'll go out and I'll spend money on a sci-fi book that intrigues me. I love comic fiction and i will go out and i love i love jeeves and uh, the, uh, pg woodhouse when i was younger and i and i bought like 20 of them so i think it's wrong to try and peg readers and so i love the fact that there are readers out there who are allowed to make their own choices if we present them with with books now i mean i don't like to bang on about diversity in the publishing industry because that's that's not my nature but We have seen, all of us are aware of the fact that the industry has been not very diverse for many, many decades and is now making the effort. And there's lots of great people, um, including people like you who are giving, finally giving a platform to to different types of writer and different types of story, different types of voice. And I think no one has a right to be published, no matter what your background or your color or your race or your whatever. but if everyone's given the same platform to showcase what they've got, then readers are smart enough to make up their own minds about whether or not that's in- intri- intriguing to them. And then they can make the decision. And if enough readers get behind a particular author or a particular type of book, then the industry sits up and takes notice and says, oh, we were wrong all these years. We didn't make- need to exclude these people. Readers have decided they like this stuff anyway. So, yeah, if we can make money at it, why, why shouldn't we publish more of this? And in terms of the kind of things that readers write to me about that really make me laugh, I think when you do historical fiction, like my current series, uh, you, you are inevitably going to, because you do so much research and you try and put it into the book, you're inevitably going to make certain mistakes. And my, uh, my favourite one is of a chap who wrote to me and said, uh, Dear Mr Khan, I love, I love your, Mid- your Midnight at Malabar house novel. However, on page 67 line number four you have mentioned that persis is riding around in a jeep with windows a police jeep with windows however i regret to inform you that in 1950 that jeep did not have windows and he was perfectly right and i you know i i re- I, I checked it out he was right and i wrote back to him and said thank you so much and in future she will not be there will be no windows on persis's jeep <laughs>
0: Did you um did you see the um the panel with Mark Billingham and uh, Chris Brookmeyer at Bloody Scotland where they read out all their funny reviews and stuff? It was it was very funny, but some of the stuff that they get sent was unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I mean they're both very good friends of mine, and and I'm doing panels with both of them this year at various events. In fact, Mark is on the committee at, at Harrogate with me. Uh, he's a very funny man, isn't he? Right from his maid Marian days to, to to now, as a as a top novelist, yeah. Uh, look, authors most, most 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 authors will tell you the same thing. When you start out and your first book is published, reviews can be a bit hurtful and damaging if they're very negative. Uh, but over time, you begin to learn that that's that's okay. It's it's okay for people to not like your stuff, um, and if enough people are liking it, uh, then it doesn't really matter in the long run. In fact, sometimes it can be helpful. It, they, they can point out things that you might want to th- consider. So I never take negative reviews personally. Um, it's just not in my nature in the first place, but also I don't think it's productive.
0: Um, if you're able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you choose? <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> how, how does one choose from from all of these incredible writers across, across history. Wow. Well, I'm a huge fan of, um, I mean, most of the authors that I really love currently, I, I've, I've already spent time with them, like Michael Connolly, who writes the, <clears throat> the Harry Bosch series set in, in LA. Um, we shared a published list in the UK, and, and when he came over, we, we had a lovely chat. Um, oh, I don't know. I suppose I might want to go back and, and spend some time with good old Will Shakespeare just so I can I can solve the mystery of, as to whether or not he actually wrote all of these things, because, you know, we have that controversy over whether or not uh, good old Willie actually wrote every single thing in, in the Shakespeare canon or not. I'd like to believe that he did because I like to believe in, in Shakespeare's genius um, and he's incredibly popular in India and remains on the syllabus. Uh, in in India. So that's another reason for for liking good old, good old Shakespeare.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Um, And if you're able to travel to any period of time, either forwards or backwards, where would you go?
1: Oh, undoubtedly, ancient Egypt. And that's because about two decades ago, when I was trying to write a literary novel, I wrote a 200,000 word uh, literary novel set in, in Egypt. Uh, following three generations of an Egyptian family I mean it was unreadable my agent refuses to read it um, he says look 200,000 words I'm not reading that and it's not crime fiction so you know you just confuse everybody if you try and publish that but my dream is that one day I will get that book once I've trimmed it down a bit I will get that book published.
0: What is it particularly about ancient Egypt that interests you?
1: Well, it's one of the oldest civilizations. I mean, civilization as we know it is, is constantly evolving. Right. Uh, but it's amazing to me how different groups of human beings, whether in Egypt or Mesopotamia or Babylon or or India. India has a very old ancient civilization called the Indus Valley Civilization. How they managed to, 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 to get together as a society to create rules and regulations and structures to help uh, create these amazing civilizations that, you know, if we're honest, without those, those, those uh, forebears for the societies that we have today, we'd still be stumbling around you know, in forests and, and, and eating berries and, and all the rest of it. So we're not by any means civilized human beings we might like to believe that we're civilized but when you look at the kind of atrocities and things that happen and are happening right now you know we don't have to go very far right now do we to see some of the kind of atrocities that are happening in Europe we are not yet civilized a truly civilized human society uh, won't have any of the kind of angst that we uh, that we associate with with modern life, with, you know, lack of economic scarcity and politics and and jingoism and racism and all the rest of the isms and, and war and famine and all the rest of it. So we are thousands of years away from achieving that. But each and every day we make progress. And that's why today is better than yesterday. I know everybody won't agree with that, but I firmly believe that today is always better than yesterday, even if by a tiny, tiny degree.
0: Um, who was your first celebrity crush?
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh, who would be that? Uh, Probably, well, I was a teenager. So I guess I was watching a lot of Home and Away and Neighbours. So maybe who was that one woman in Neighbours who was the sort of mousy librarian type yeah. Oh God, what was her name? Jane, I think her name was. Jane somebody or other. Because I never really liked Kylie Minogue, but I kind of liked that Jane. Mm. And then and then she flowered into, into, some, into a, a bit more glamorous. She became more glamorous. She basically just took off her glasses and became super glamorous, like Superman.
0: <laughs> I think, funnily enough, when I interviewed Will Dean, Will Dean's answer was Kylie. So that's quite interesting. Oh,
1: right. <laughs> I'll have to take that up with him then.
0: but he doesn't like her now I mean I think she's quite a hot woman but he's like no not interested now does nothing for me why does (laughs) really I mean that's
1: a that's a shame I personally I've gone the other direction and I've got enormous admiration for the fact that she's created this incredible career because most people they leave a soap and they just die don't they they think they're going to be famous in Hollywood and then they never achieve anything whereas she's created this incredible career and yeah, uh, and I think that's that's amazing that she's dedicated her life to doing that and and become really so successful at it. I think she's great.
0: Yeah, I agree. But yeah, some people I don't know.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, where's the strangest or funniest place you've ever woken up?
1: Uh, on a beach in Goa. So when I was living in India, um, Goa was party central and you know i'd go down there quite regularly with my friends and you never knew where you were going to wake up at some point i think i've got a picture of me laid out on a beach bar in on the sand in goa at some point now i like to suggest to anybody that uh, anybody who sees that that i was i was thinking deeply i was contemplating the universe because a lot of people go to goa to contemplate the, the universe
0: If I was to ask your darling wife and those closest to you what your most annoying habits are, what would they say?
1: Uh, sh- my, my, my missus is um, a very fun laid back human being, which means that she's never on time for anything ever. And this is over more than what, how long have we known each other, 25 years? She's never once been on time for anything, which drives me mental because I am an absolute stickler for timeliness and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and I get hugely annoyed, hugely annoyed by it. And I still do, but there's no cure. There's no cure for her uh, being late for things and for, and there's no cure for for her thinking that I am uh, too much of a, 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 that I am basically anally retentive about these things. She keeps telling me, just chill out. What is the point? What, what are you? Why are you fussing over 10, 15 minutes? And I said, if, I, if, I, if you don't understand that after 25 years of, of being with me, then there's nothing I can say that can make you understand why those 10 minutes are important. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so what's coming next for you?
1: Well, things have gone really, really well uh, with the Malabar House series. As I said, it, it won the CWA dagger, so it's had a lot of stuff internationally. Um got a huge number of events going on over the next year and the third book in that series so the second book in that series i should probably mention what's it called the dying the dying day where is it yeah it's this one it's just come out in paperback uh, which might be of interest so this is a hardback but it's just come out in paperback it's called the dying day and that's um literally just come out uh, in paperback as i said so that's about the theft of one of india's great historical treasures a 600 year old copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy, which is a real artifact in India. And it's and it's been stored for 200 years in a place called Bombay's Asiatic Society. And what happens in in this book, The Dying Day, uh, is that that manuscript goes missing. Persis is called in to investigate and she discovers a series of coded riddles written in verse that she has to decipher to try and figure out what's happened to this manuscript. And as she does so, uh, a number of bodies turn up, and so she has to, she realizes that there's somebody out there killing people to try and get to this manuscript. So it's been called by um, uh, Mike Craven, who won the CWA gold dagger as, um, as the Da Vinci Code meets post partition India, which I thought was a nice way of, of putting it, because it's got a similar kind of riddles to be solved and, and, and esoteric facts that come to light in the, in the pursuit of this, uh, this, this manuscript. Um, so doing a lot of marketing for that this year, a lot of events to promote that. Uh, and then the third book comes out in, in August. It's called The Lost Man of Bombay. but It's a bit early to talk about
0: that yet, I guess. Yes, yeah, that will soon be here. <laughs> well, you may be relieved to know I don't have any more questions for you. And if you think there's anything that I haven't asked you that you want to tell us.
1: No, just to say a great big thank you to you and to your to your viewers. Um, I think you said that we should do some sort of uh, giveaway, right? Yes. Okay, so why don't we do, how do you normally run these giveaways?
0: Just usually leave them open. Either you can ask a question based on the interview or you can just have people comment, it's up to you. Uh,
1: okay, so why don't we do this? Uh, I won't ask a question. or What I'll do is I'll ask people to comment and tell me about their most intriguing, experience of India or anything that they've learnt of India that they found very intriguing, and the most interesting one out of that, I will send. I will send uh, a couple of these novels, one from each series.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. And is, it, that, is that normal? Would...
1: Is, that, is that what you normally do yeah. with your giveaways, or are they more yeah, extensive absolutely. or this? Yeah.
0: No, okay. no, that's Brilliant. great. I'll be, I can't wait to see what everyone says as well. Um, and if everyone does want to go buy them or they want to find out more about you how can they do that
1: well um yeah they're available everywhere the waterstones all the bookshops indie bookshops I mean you know I'm a huge supporter of indie bookshops so if you can get it from your indie bookshop and you want to do that uh that's that would be wonderful um amazon obviously uh, but you know as I said indie bookshops probably need your love a little bit more than than Amazon, but, you know, I'm certainly not going to knock Amazon. Um, and, my, and if you want to find out more about me, um, vasimkhan.com, that's my website. You'll also find a whole series of articles about India, uh, free articles to download, which I, which I do because I do so much research, uh, historical research, that I decided to write 50 articles about India, and, you know, every few weeks I'll release, I'll release one of them, and there's some really fascinating things that I discovered which I enjoyed putting into, into those articles. And they're all on my my website so yeah basim Awesome.
0: awesome well, thank you very much
1: <laughs> thank you donna and thank you everyone